0: And I'm very happy to be with you guys on this uh, fake spring day. Uh, Winter came up and just stole spring from us. Um, I I don't know what's the last really great album that you've listened to. Uh, One where you could just put it in and vibe out. You didn't have to skip anything. Uh, For some of you guys, it's that new Cardi. uh, You just hit play and start from scratch. Um, uh, There's something profound about what happens to you when you just listen to an album you start to notice things about the artist that you would not notice if you simply always went to your favorite song. There's some things about the artist and what that whole project is trying to communicate to you is is missed when you only go directly to your favorite track. The Bible is kind of like that. It's not meant to just go straight to your favorite track in the Bible. You're not supposed to just crack it open and go right to Philippians 4.13 every single time. Um, It's meant to actually be read... In its entirety. As a matter of fact, um, with the exception of the Psalms, the entire Bible, those books and the stories that are inside of the books that make up the Bible, are meant to be read from beginning to end in one sitting. Certainly, the epistles and the Gospels, for example, were meant to be read um, in one sitting. Now, there's a, a lot of value that comes in studying Scripture and, and taking it slowly, uh, but you'll miss out on a lot of things if you only do chop and chop it up one verse or one chapter at a time. There's one thing that I've realized and I've noticed in the life of Jesus that really makes itself really apparent when I read through a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in its entirety. It's this phrase that you see all over the the place where Jesus seemingly sometimes out of nowhere gets up, withdraws from whatever he's doing, and goes to pray. Sometimes nothing is really going on. Uh, The scripture writers just tell us that Jesus gets up, sometimes at night, and goes to pray. And uh, there were moments in scripture where he would pray the entire night long. Other times, there's something more dramatic going on in his life. Uh, One of my favorite stories, uh, something that I've told a number of times here, um, and I'll probably continue to tell it because it's so meaningful to me, is when Jesus heals a leper. Uh, there's this man that, was, uh, that got leprosy, and leprosy was a highly contagious disease, so if you ever got leprosy, you would be immediately excommunicated from your family, from all of society that you knew, whatever job you had was done, and you would live on the margins with other lepers. Healing wasn't just physical for a leper, healing was the, their entire body and being restored into society. Jesus sees this leper who is desperate, and he runs to Jesus, begs at his feet, and says, Jesus, can you please heal me? In an act of divine grace and power, Jesus doesn't just speak a word of healing over the leper, he touches him. Now, nobody would come close to this leper, but Jesus, in showing his love and care for people, goes, and he lays his hands on a man and heals him. That man restored back into the family of God. Now, crowds start to hear about Jesus and all of his miraculous power, and they start to rush towards Jesus, and Scripture tells us that immediately after healing the leper, Jesus goes, and he goes to pray. He withdraws. There are other times in Scripture where it tells us that Jesus withdrew to pray, and these were not on triumphal, amazing moments in his life uh, following a healing. These were in the soul-crushing moments of Jesus before he was to go to the cross. Uh, It's known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's about to hang on a cross like a criminal, and Scripture says that he goes to pray. In every single moment in Jesus' life, in every season, the mundane moments where really nothing is going on, the exciting moments where Jesus is doing the impossible, and the soul-crushing moments where Jesus is about to encounter death, he prays. At every single turn, he's praying. He's praying. Now, it's really interesting that it's impossible to tell the story of Jesus and his life without noticing all of the times that he prayed. And the gospel writers, when they write um, Jesus's life, they talk about prayer every single time. And there's something about prayer in Jesus's life that he found useful and valuable. And it seemed to sustain, guide, comfort, center, and encourage him in every aspect of his life. Now, one of the most convicting things about this for me, quite honestly, is that if Jesus felt it was useful and valuable that in every single season in his life, he would pray in the moments where really nothing is going on, that he would have an emphasis on getting up early in the morning, departing, withdrawing from everything that's going around, getting away from the noise to pray, man, how much more should I do that? If Jesus found it valuable and necessary and worthwhile to pray right after his most amazing moments... And how much more should you and I do that? If Jesus found it necessary to pray in the soul crushing moments of the Garden of Gethsemane before he would face his greatest challenge and obstacle, how much more should you and I pray and when life hands us things that we, are not, uh, uh, we don't feel capable and able to handle on our own? But it's also compelling for me because it, it makes me want to come to Jesus, much like his disciples did in his life, and ask, Man, Jesus, you you obviously have this amazing knack and emphasis on prayer in your life. Could you teach me to pray like you do? Could you impart something from your life that would actually make its way to my life, that would make prayer more valuable and worthwhile in my life, so that I too could be sustained and carried and guided and focused and encouraged and challenged and corrected by this thing called prayer? Uh, We've been in this series called The Gospel and Race and have been going through uh, for the last number of weeks, some of the injustices in this world, particularly racism, past and present. And uh, for those of you guys who were not with us last week, uh, I cannot stress enough uh, how much I would recommend going back and, uh, and listening to that podcast. Uh, that podcast and that message was the, the practical how-to. If you've ever wondered the question, how do I actually confront injustices in my life uh, in a variety of avenues, uh, we, we, we talked about a number of things about how you would approach that. Uh, that issue, and I certainly don't have the time to retell it in, in general right now, but one of the things that we did at the end of the message uh, was that we interviewed a woman from our community, a uh, community group leader here named Cedra, and Cedra is a hero of mine. She's been engaged in activism and justice work. Um, she's not one of these new people who just got woke two days ago. She's been involved for, for decades, and we asked Cedra, Cedra, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that encourages you and sustains you and guides you and comforts you when you probably feel like giving up? Her answer was clear and immediate, prayer. If you and I would be people, uh, if we would be the salt and light that Jesus calls us to be, then it will be prayer, just like it was for Jesus' life, that would sustain, focus, correct, challenge, and drive us to do the things that God would have us to do. But here's the issue. Um, As our teaching team sat down this week and we talked about prayer, and more specifically how uh, prayer would uh, engage our community as we're talking about the gospel and race, I've I've had two fears for our community, and these are two very real fears that I have, not just for you, but also for me. My first fear is that no matter how much we talk about God and his heart for justice, and that you can see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's heart for people who are on the margins— And no matter how much we talk about Jesus and his mission, and his mission was not just for souls, but it was also for bodies. And that Jesus gave himself to the cause of the oppressed and to the prisoner, to uh, to the afflicted. And no matter how much we talk about all of these different things, that when you and I, my fear is that when you and I would encounter something that we could do something about, you wouldn't do anything about it. We would remain inactive. It would all be lip service. It would be one series that we did in 2018 and never to return to it except just to look at a couple of quotes that we thought were fire. And my real fear for myself is that I would forget about a lot of this stuff and that I would be inactive and I wouldn't do uh, what it is that God could be calling me to do. Now, there's a couple of reasons why people remain inactive, and this is true about me and it might be true about you. Uh, I noticed that in my prayer life, slowly but surely, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, slowly but surely, my prayers turn Uh, into a laundry list of things that I would like God to do for me. It doesn't happen overnight, but eventually, when I start to evaluate and take inventory of my prayer life, it's all about the things that I would like for God to do. And there's no mention of what God might be calling me into. And my prayer life becomes all about me, and I become the center of the universe. And when you're the center of your own universe, you're not going to lend yourself to the cause of justice You're only gonna worry about yourself, your safety, your finances, and the things that make you feel comfortable. And I'm speaking from experience. Another thing that causes people to be inactive, and this is a really big one when it comes to race and racism, is pure discouragement. It's to look around the landscape of the world and to think not only are things not getting better, they're getting worse to feel over and over again that all of our best efforts would lead to absolutely nothing good. God, I tried. I prayed. I, I went to the march. I went to the protest. I, I tweeted some dope stuff. I, I didn't get a lot of retweets, but it was fire when I tweeted it. <laughs> and God, still nothing is happening. It all tends to be pretty exhausting. Uh, this, a couple of days ago, there were these two guys, uh, two black guys sitting in a Starbucks in Philly, and they were getting arrested, and they got perp-walked out of there um, just for sitting in a Starbucks Um, just, and they were calling it Starbucks and Wild Black. And when you see all of the things that happen across the national landscape, it's all really exhausting. And discouragement is a real thing that keeps people from doing anything because you're so discouraged that you feel like nothing you would do would even matter. So uh, why do anything in the first place? Now, on the other extreme, so on one side, there is inaction, where either discouragement or me-centeredness leaves me inactive, but there's another fear that I have for a lot of us. It's that you would turn into a Pharisee. It's that you would start to uh, become the thing that you say you hate. Now, Pharisees, for a lot of people, signify old Jewish dudes in robes, and you think, I'm not changing my wardrobe no time soon, so this is not a fear for me, or I'm not that religious, so this is not a problem that I might encounter. And here's the thing about Pharisees. You don't even have to be religious to be a Pharisee. All Pharisees had, they had a great desire to honor God, they had a great desire to do right, and slowly but surely, they started to look down on other people who weren't doing it as well as they are. They started to notice that their piety and their good works and their good actions uh, were better than what other people were doing. And before you knew it, they became Jesus' biggest enemies. They were people that were as far from the kingdom of God as humanly possible. Here's what I know to be true about working in, in, in race and in, in racism and in, in justice work if you're not careful, you'll turn into a Pharisee. Nobody uh, is a Pharisee on purpose, it happens accidentally. It's almost like going to dinner at Applebee's. Nobody does it on purpose. (laughs) You just look up and realize you're eating good in the neighborhood, (laughs) and you wonder, how did you get there? The journey to becoming an accidental Pharisee usually starts out really innocently. Here's what happens. There's something that wakes you up. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's justice. And then you start to actually take steps of action towards that. And while you're taking steps of action, you are deeply persuaded about God's passion for this thing as well. And while you're working and while you're starting to make actions and starting to make changes in your life, you start to realize that you're doing a really good job. Even worse, there are some other people who said they were doing it, but they're not really doing it like you are. They said that they were enlightened, but they're not really enlightened. They said that they were down for the cause, but they're not really down for the cause like you are. And before you know it, you start to think that you're better than them. And accidentally, you become the thing that uh, is as far from the kingdom of God as humanly possible. Now, there's something that Jesus has given us in Scripture that will keep us from both becoming inactive and simultaneously will keep us from being a Pharisee. And it's a thing that's sustained and kept and guided, and focused, and clarified Jesus' life every single step of the way. It's prayer. Uh, I cannot overstate how important it is for prayer to be the central thing that shapes us, and guides us, and corrects us, and molds us, if we were to be people of justice. There's a story in Scripture where Jesus' disciples come to him, blown away by the profoundness of Jesus' prayer life, and ask him, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus models for them a prayer that's oftentimes known as the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in church or went to Catholic school, then there's no doubt you have prayed this a hundred times. And even as I've gone through the words this past week, I've been blown away by the depths in which Jesus is talking about and how, much, and how powerful it is to shape our lives, how powerful it is as a guardrail to keep us from being inactive and to guard us from being Pharisees. Now, really clearly from up front, this is a way to pray. This is certainly not the only way to pray, but I have found it to be super helpful in my life. And even as we're considering uh, 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 the issues of race and racism, I would invite you also to just spend a week praying this prayer every single morning. Go through it slowly. Don't, don't, Don't rush through the words. And allow it to do something in your life. And I promise you, it will serve as a guardrail to keep you from being inactive and also to keep you from being and becoming a Pharisee. Uh, you've heard it before, it Comes from this version comes from Matthew 6, 9-13, and it says, Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us, from the evil one. Uh, it starts off very intentionally to take our focus from ourselves and to put it on God. And the prayer starts off with this first line Our Father who art in heaven. I always said the King James language, it's like, oh, it's an old habit that won't die. Uh, our Father who is in heaven. Now, the reason Jesus does this is to remind us of what the nature of God is. And if you and I, as we walk through the series on, uh, on, on the gospel and race, We need very firmly planted in our brains, what is the nature of God? Because if we lose the nature of God, it is the quickest way for us to become a Pharisee. And the first thing, as we pursue justice, we need to be reminded of the nature of God. So Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. It would be true theologically to pray to our King. It would be true theologically to pray to our Judge. It would be true theologically to pray to uh, our friend, but Jesus says, although God is our friend and our judge and our king and our savior and all these different things, he wants us to be reminded about this specific nature of God, that when you pray, pray like this. You're praying to God as our father. Now, this is really important because you could either have a business relationship with God that is based on transactions, or you can have a family relationship with God. And the quickest way to become a Pharisee is to turn the relationship you have with God into a business one. Here's what a business relationship is. A business relationship says, I have something for you. A family relationship says, I am something to you. These are profoundly different concepts. Business says, I have something for you. You and your landlord, you have a business relationship. He has for you an apartment that you are allowed to live in. You have that rent. If you don't, you're going to be in them streets. That's what you... It is a business relationship that always has consequences if someone doesn't hold up to their end of the bargain. And here's what the Pharisees turned their relationship to God into, a transactional one, where they were constantly coming to God as, God, I have something for you. I have these wonderful things that I have done. I have these elaborate and eloquent prayers that I can pray. I have these beautiful and majestic robes that I'm wearing. Surely, God, you will accept me. And when you turn your relationship into God, with God into uh, a transactional relationship, uh, you will become a Pharisee. Here's how this touches the gospel and race. A lot of us, in all of our work in striving towards justice and striving to be enlightened, you will start to think, or you might start to think, that it is your enlightenment, it is your good works, it is your good actions, it is your passion for justice that allows you to come into a relationship with God. And if you start to think that, then people who don't have your passion and your burden for justice and your action and level of activity, those people in your mind will not be able to approach God. And Jesus first and foremost reorients our life and says, it is not a business relationship where it is based on transactions. It is based on relationship. It is not what I have for you. It is what I am to you. And implicit in that is not just what um, we are to God, but what God is to us. He's our Father. I have a couple scars from the war that we just fought, uh, potty training my son. And it was uh, a brutal number of months, but praise Jesus, uh, the victory has been won. <laughs> and while, I was potty training, while we were potty training our son, I realized the level of commitment that I had to him as his father in all of the highs and all of the lows. So there would be moments where I would look him dead in the black of his eyes, like, listen, when you have to go to the potty, it's right here, okay? Potty here. Potty here. Great. Got it. Three seconds later, he'd go in his pants. As his father, it would have been uh, worthy of calling CPS, ACS, and every agency inside of New York if I were to say, well, he didn't get it right. I told him what to do. He didn't do it. So that's it. Go out on them streets. You didn't listen to me? You didn't do your job? No good father, no good parent would treat their kid like that. But yet and still, a lot of us think that God is like that. That when we are ignorant of some things, that God is judging us based off of this transactional relationship. You're not aware as, as much as you should be, therefore, I'm going to kick you out. Or based on of our flat-out disobedience, the times that we look God in the eyes and do the opposite thing of what he has called us, to do. In these moments, when we're looking at our shortcomings, Jesus reminds us that God, as our Father, is not um, going to leave us based on our ignorance and our failings and our shortcomings, but rather, as a good parent, God is responsible for our growth. And the essence of the gospel is is not that God will love me if I do good things, but the opposite is true, that because God loves me, he will make me good. And it is God's sustaining, eternal presence that walks alongside of us, that doesn't give up on us because we've made a mistake, that doesn't leave us alone because we're not perfect, uh, that doesn't uh, just simply judge us, but is committed to us as our fathers that will allow us to actually be sustained and to continue to move forward. So Jesus first tells us to pray. When you pray, I want you to be reminded about the nature of God. This is not a business transaction, and I don't want you to put that on somebody else's head uh, to make them a business transaction as well. There are a lot of people who are potty training and failing miserably. There are people in your community group who are nowhere near as buttoned up as you are. People in this community who are nowhere near. They're either they're too active or maybe they're just, uh, or not active enough. And here's what Scripture tells us, that God is committed to them too. Uh, so to pray our Father is to proclaim God's faithfulness to children, not God's standards as a business operation. Uh, a few years ago, Jessica and I went to India uh, for a vacation. And one of the most beautiful things to see in India were these beautiful, ornate Hindu temples. And inside of the temples, you would see Americans and tourists uh, taking pictures and looking at uh, the architecture and the artwork inside. But you would also see uh, devotees and people who were praying. And there was this one woman who went up to one of the idols, dropped some money, walked back very slowly, and was saying her prayers. And here's what she was uh, basically praying I was good, I gave money, and now I'm asking for something in return. I was good, I've done what I needed to do, I gave money, I gave something, and now I'm asking for something in return. Uh, there's a lot of Christians in America that have never traveled to India or stepped their and in, feet inside of a Hindu temple, but yet the basis of your prayers is this, God, I was good, I gave this and this, I gave my time and my energy, now, God, I'm asking for something in return. A business transaction is that, God, I was good, I gave this, I'm asking for something in return. What Jesus is calling us to is completely different. It's coming to God as our Father and listening to God for his guidance and allowing God to shape us and to move us into whatever direction that he would have us to go. Now, this is also really good news for people who are dealing with discouragement, which is leading you to inaction. Uh, If God is our Father, Jesus tells us to not just pray to God our Father, but our Father in heaven and here's what Jesus is, getting, uh, is meaning by that, that God has a different vantage point than you and I do. God has way more power than you and I do. So when you pray, know that it is our Father, uh, the sovereign Lord of all in heaven, where angels bow down and declare his, his worth and honor and blessing and glory and power, and that nothing exists outside of his will. And our God, our Father, is the sovereign king, the uncreated creator who dwells in eternity in perfect knowledge, power, joy, and majesty is our loving Father. So you don't need to be discouraged when you can't see what the next step is, but rather you and I can come to God, our Father who is in heaven, and his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his power is greater than ours. The second part of the prayer that we're looking at today is um, a phrase that Jesus says that when you and I pray, after we orient ourselves around uh, the nature of God, it's to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, kingdom is a word that's a pretty loaded one that doesn't make too much sense to us in modern day democracy. Kingdom is basically a way of doing things. And here's what Jesus is telling us to pray. Here's what these phrases add up to. They add up to us surrendering our will to God. We all have kingdoms. We have things that we would like, the, the way that we would like things to be. We have wills. We have desires. We have desired outcomes that we would like things to be. And here's what Jesus is telling us in this prayer, that in order for us to truly be people that are salt and light and to be sustained for the long term, you and I need to constantly, over and over and over again, surrender your will to God. The Pharisees... Uh, And the people who would be too inactive and not do anything, uh, they've lost sight of what it means to truly surrender your will to God. Uh, And the best way for us to prevent against being inactive or turning into a Pharisee is to daily pray, God, not my will, not the way that I would like things to go, but I'm praying for your will to be done. Not the way that I think things should go, but your way of things. And this one is not easy. To surrender your will means that you are following God's lead without knowing where he's sending you. You're waiting for God's timing without knowing when it will come. My will is always for things to be done now. The children of Israel prayed, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you sit and stand afar forever? God's will might take a lot much longer to unfold. To pray your will be done means trusting God's purposes without understanding the circumstances. Literally, Jesus is saying this to pray like this. God, let your will happen. And to pray, let your will happen, means that we would strive to do everything that God would have us to do. Here's the thing, you have a will, Jesus has a will, and there are often times that your two wills are not the same. And to pray, Lord, your will be done, means you're saying, Lord, I'm going to strive to do everything that you are calling me to do, even if this is something that I don't like to do or want to do. And it also means for us to submit patiently for all of God's plans to unfold. Uh, It's interesting, the order of the prayer that Jesus prays, uh, praying your will be done and your kingdom come, comes before give us, which shows us a little bit that um, what we are trying to get or what we should try to get in prayer is not to bend God's will to us, but rather for us to bend to God's will. So Jesus tells us to pray your will be done. Uh, there's a theologian named Charles de Facald, and he has a very famous prayer that is another version of your will be done, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done, and here's how he says it, and this is one of the scariest prayers in all of, uh, that I've ever heard, and um, if you say it, if you read the words, um, you've already said it in your heart, so you might want to close your eyes as I read it. Um, it says, God, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me whatever you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I am ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all of your creatures. For I love you, Lord, and so want to give myself to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. Amen. I can't think of a scarier prayer than that because when I think about God and his will, I know that God has a different will than I do. Uh, this past week, I was confronted uh, with how different my will is from God's will, uh, particularly around the issues of race and racism. The first thing that happens in my heart is I can quickly identify my enemies and what I would like to happen to my enemies. And you guys have heard that prayer. It's gone around social media. God, remove the two front teeth of my enemies so I can see them coming a mile away, um, and there are things that we would like to happen to our enemies and the, the, the people that we don't like or the people that we don't think are as good as us or uh, in any of these things. But Jesus has a much different will for you and for me than we might have for ourselves. Here's what Jesus t- tells us to do. Here's his will. This is not a, a fuzzy thing. This is not a complex issue. This isn't, you don't need a, a degree in theology to understand his will on this. It comes from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Jesus says it like this, You have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you just love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Here's your will. Your will is to treat your enemies one way, and God's will for you is quite the opposite. Jesus says, bless those that curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, This past week, I was confronted, uh, first and foremost, straight up um, in a way that uh, I realized how much my will is different than God's will, and it was pretty humbling. Uh, I met this one guy a couple of months ago, and uh, we started talking, and I realized that he was a, a minister, and he started asking me about uh, me and church, and I told him about Renaissance. And uh, he also told me that he was a police chaplain. And he says, man, where's your church? I said, oh, right there on 121st and 7th. He says, yo, that's great, because I'm a police chaplain right down the street at, that, uh, at the precinct right there. You should come to one of our next prayer days and pray for the police. I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I didn't even, uh, he didn't even tell me the day before I was like, I'm busy. I I can't do that. (laughs) Now, I I know a lot of police personally who I love, and there are members of our community who are police, and they're fantastic people. But when all of the police shootings happen, the last thing that Jordan Lawrence Rice wants to do is go to the precinct and pray for those people. The last thing I'd want to do is is take my own advice, and based on the interactions that I've had, and get close to the things that I say I care about and then to do some uncomfortable things. Learn their names, learn their stories, and then pray for them. Jordan, your will is to talk judgmentally about them and sit on your high little horse and point out their flaws in every single person. God's will for you is to get up off your chair and go pray for them. Get involved. You say you care about it? Great. You preach all these sermons with tears in your eyes? Good. Get up there and go and pray for them and and get into proximity with the things that you say you care about. Now, you guys are going to have to keep me accountable in a couple of months to see whether or not I've actually gone. <laughs> uh, but one of the challenges I feel in my life around racing racism, uh, particularly when I'm called to do something that's uncomfortable, is to realize that my will and God's will are very different. And here's what I know to be true about me that might be true about you. Uh, I can't do that on my own. I heard an old preacher once say that you need Jesus to follow Jesus that there's nothing inside of me on my own accord that's going to want to actually do what God is calling me to do, and I need Jesus just to follow Jesus. Next line of the prayer is uh, exactly what we need. It is give us our daily bread. It's an invitation to, uh, us for us to acknowledge our dependence on God. That it is not us of our own and our own strength and our own volition and our own power and our own intellect that will carry us, uh, give us the ability to, to do what God is calling us to do, but rather that we need God to feed us daily. We need God to motivate us and we need God to sustain us and to comfort us and to direct us and focus us every single step of the way. And if you and I would be people of justice, would be people of God, we need to daily acknowledge our dependence on Him Uh, Bread was a powerful symbol for God's provision uh, for the people in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God cared for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, and day by day, God fed them by giving them bread. And here's what's so profound about that story. Uh, As God fed them bread day by day... Uh, they got smart one day and they said, hey, we're going to, instead of depending on God to give us bread every day, why don't we just throw some stuff in the stash? That way we don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to come through for us. So let's store it up as much as we can get, and then tomorrow we're going to have a stash. The next day they woke up and it was rotten and molded and inedible. Here's what that teaches us. You and I cannot stack up anything in the 24 hours of our day that will not require us to need God's grace and his mercy tomorrow. God's mercies are brand new every morning because you need them every morning. You and I need to acknowledge our dependence on Jesus. There are things that God is calling each and every one of us to do in this room today, and you might have accurately said, God, I I, I can't do that. In some of the conversations around race and racism, uh, maybe it's a confession that you need to make and it's uncomfortable and you don't feel like you can do it. By God's grace and God's strength, you can. Maybe there's someone that you need to forgive and in your own power, uh, you can't bring yourself to even be near them because they said something that is offensive or they said something that really rubbed you the wrong way and you're right, on your own, you cannot do it. But By God's grace and his mercy in your life, you can. We need to acknowledge our dependence and then we see Jesus' words for us to pray to God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. At the heart of the Christian message uh, are these lines right here, that you and I are a community of grace that gives grace to people who need grace. And receiving and giving grace are at the the, the, the center uh, the centerpiece of Christian theology and Christian life. And to pray these words, forgive us of our sins, is to pray for forgiveness because God does forgive people. And here's the last point we see in this, uh, that we should be people who receive and give grace. In order for us to be a people of justice, we need to learn how to receive and to give grace. Uh, when I spoke with Cedra last week, uh, one of the things that she mentioned that really stuck with me was how she was carried over the decades, not just by herself and certainly through prayer, but also the community that she had built around her. And you want to know what's the worst community in the world? A community of Pharisees that don't ever give grace to anybody else. A community of Pharisees that don't even know what grace feels like. They don't even know what forgiveness feels like. And here's Jesus telling us that you and I need to be people who can both receive and give grace. Grace, because God's forgiveness is available to us, and Jesus asks, tells us to ask for forgiveness because God will give you forgiveness. And His forgiveness is better than our imagination. In First John 1 and nine, it says that uh, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what's so interesting about forgiveness. You can be forgiven without feeling forgiven. And one of the biggest obstacles to people actually receiving forgiveness is feeling that what God has come to do is to change your feelings and not your reality. What Jesus has come to do in our lives is not simply to give us a warm and fuzzy feeling, but rather to eternally change our state and to give us forgiveness Uh, The word forgive actually means to carry away. And this goes all the way back to the ancient Levitical practices where they would, on the day of atonement, send a scapegoat out into the forest to be seen never again. And this scapegoat was to represent for people what was happening with their sins, that their sins were being carried and taken away. As the psalmist tells us in 103 and 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What scripture tells us is that when Jesus went to the cross, he was carrying our sins away from us, never to be seen again. And whether or not you feel like you've been forgiven, the Bible is very clear. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. Uh, years ago, I went to court for uh, my father-in-law. Uh, he got into a, a car accident, and uh, we were in Virginia in traffic court. And y'all know Virginia. Y'all know they don't play with, uh, with traffic stuff down there. As soon as the judge got in the courtroom, he said, uh, you all are here because you're facing jail time. And I hope you have a good lawyer because uh, and you're not representing yourself because uh, you could go to jail today. And I was thinking to myself... It's going to be a really awkward car ride home if I get my wife's dad thrown in jail because I'm not prepared for, uh, for court today. And I was nervously like, combing through my paperwork and nervously walking to the DA and asking him for what kind of deal we could work out. And the DA wasn't really trying to make a deal. He was trying to hold him to the charge and say, well, listen, you could just plead guilty. He'll have a misdemeanor on his record, and hopefully the judge won't throw him in jail. As we uh, stood up, the judge called our name, and my father-in-law stood up, and I stood there, uh, palms were sweaty, knees weak, arms were heavy, and I was, (laughs) yes, Your Honor, uh, just uh, terrified of what the judge would say. Uh, And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, uh, the DA hadn't done and filed all the paperwork that he needed to file, so he called the case, said, uh, called the case and the case number and said, case dismissed. Now, my father-in-law had no idea what was going on. I barely had any idea what was going on. But what I did know was I was getting up out of there. I was like, yo, come on, we're leaving. we leaving. Let's go. Let's go. And out the courtroom, people were asking me, what happened? I was like, just walk. Just walk. Walk. Leave the building. I didn't want that judge changing his mind. But I knew what his pronouncement was. And before my father-in-law felt forgiven, before he understood what happened, he had been released. The story of Jesus in Scripture is not that Jesus has come and worked alongside you to, uh, uh, to make you feel warm and fuzzy and forgiven. The story is the rescue of Jesus, which has released you of everything that, uh, and, and that he has carried away our sins as far as the east is from the west. And you and I can come to him and know that we have found forgiveness in him and him alone. And in receiving that forgiveness, to truly receive that forgiveness, to know the ways that you've been wrong, to know that the ways that you've gone astray on purpose, and to come to a gracious Savior named Jesus, and know that in him we have forgiveness. There's a story in Jesus's life that messes me up every time I think about it. He's carrying his cross up up the hill, and as he's carrying the cross, he's being mocked and beaten and spit spit on. And people are saying, prophesy to us now, Jesus, who hit you? He looks at these men, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' forgiveness is much better than you could ever imagine. His forgiveness is much better than you could ever uh, think of on your own. And he comes and he tells us to come to him for forgiveness because in him forgiveness is available. And to receive forgiveness like that, means that you and I would be people that not just uh, sit in chairs and, not, uh, and hold things over people's heads, but that we would, res- we would give that grace out to someone else. If you ever tasted something that was really good, you'd want someone else to taste it. Every time I go out to eat, whenever I have something that's really good, the first thing that I look for is for someone else to verify and say, oh man, you've got to try this. This is one of the best things that I've ever had. And this is why scripture writers tell us all throughout scripture, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What God is calling us to is to be people who have received God's incredible grace and to give that out. And this is particularly true for the people who are unenlightened in your life. This is particularly true for people in your community group that might have said something that was stupid. This is particularly true for people that you would call racists, that there might be an opportunity for you and them to come in proximity with each other, and I want you to think about the grace and the mercy of Jesus, and I want that to shape your conversation with them. Because the only community that we can ever build, if we're going to be people of justice, are people that both receive but also give grace. Paul tells us these words in Colossians, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. And he tells us the basis of that. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Just as God has forgiven you for all of your wrongs and all your ignorance, I want you to forgive like that. Receiving grace and giving grace to others will allow us to be the community of grace that gives grace to people that need grace, and that is what we need for the long term, to be people who could be people of justice, God's salt and God's light in this world, moving slowly but surely towards the end that God calls us to live in. Uh, I want us to end with the Lord's Prayer, uh, a version of it that I've written up. Um, If you could, please stand with me uh, and let these words wash over your heart. Our Father in heaven, God, you promised me that I am something to you, regardless of how I'm doing today. You promised me that you're with me and that you're for me, and you will guide me as a good parent guides their children. And God, as my Father, I confess that you know better than I do, so I'm asking for your kingdom to come. Your way of things, not mine. God, I'm asking for your will to be done, not my preferences on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I cannot do it on my own, so I'm asking for you to give me daily bread. Provide for me what I cannot provide on my own. Give me strength where I am weak. Give me courage where I am timid. Give give me humility where I am proud. Remind me that I am not independent, but that I need you at every turn in my life. And Father, forgive me of my sins, the things that I'd rather not other people know about me. I confess to you my inactivity and my judgmental nature of other people. And God, I receive Jesus' works on my behalf to liberate me, and I will not trust in myself. And Lord, I vow to forgive those who have sinned against me, and I vow to give grace because I know that I need grace as well. Help me to taste that grace on a daily basis in the gospel, on the cross, so that I can have a tank full to give out to others. Lord, lead me not into temptation to think that I can be independent or to go astray from your will. Lord, you know the specific ways that I am prone to wander away from you. And Lord, I pray for the discernment and the strength to stay the course with you. Deliver me from the evil one that would try to distract me from your will. Deliver me from the evil one that would try to discourage me from your plans. God, for thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. May I live for your glory and not mine. Amen.